Without further ado, welcome Matt Komar, youth pastor. More than that, more than that. Keep it up. Come on. That's a, you guys gave me a clap. Thank you. Appreciate that more than you know. Uh, inside, I am, there's a couple things going on. One of them is like hysterical laughter because in this series on prayer, I am the one who is assigned confession. I don't know if you know we're talking about confession today. What a fun thing to talk about. I mean, we get to talk about sin. But what, what, what really gets me about this, what really tickles me, is that conveniently, our boys John and Derek happen to be out of town. Stick the youth pastor with confession. Hope it goes all right. That's right. That's right. All right, let's jump right into it. I thought we'd start off with a little fun. How about a pop quiz? Sound like fun? Uh, okay, three items, pop quiz, true, false. So you have good odds. This might be good for some of you. If you get all three right, you know, just pack up, head home, take a nap. You're good. You're good. I'm going to make three statements about confession. See... See where we stand in our understanding of confession. Ultimately, there are three statements about confession that set is satisfactory to God. Okay, by the end of today, big picture, what really what we want to get at is what is it that God is looking for in our confessions? What is it that satisfies him that he's hoping we bring to him with our confessions? So here we go, statement number one. True or false? And you don't have to say true or false. You don't have to yell anything out or hold up anything. Just think about it. Okay, true or false, the more tears that you shed throughout the duration of your confession, the more satisfied God is with your confession. Say false, okay. Like, that's crazy. There are a few people who didn't say false. Maybe they're thinking, I don't know. Maybe God wants to see a little bit of emotion here. Maybe God wants to see a little bit of, you know, I heard something about this, like, this godly sorrow. Statement number two. Statement two about confession. The sooner we confess our sins, the more satisfied God is with our confession. The sooner we confess our sins, the more ultimately satisfying that confession is before God. Maybe a little bit, maybe that maybe was a little bit trickier, okay? Maybe because it's kind of funny to think about God wanting us to be tearful. But you know, I, don't, I don't know. Does God want us just to wait for a while? Is he cool with that? You know what, just when you're ready, I don't know. Or does, does he want us to do it right away? Does he want us to confess right away? Is he more satisfied with that? Statement number three, true or false? The more sins we confess in general, the more satisfied God is with our confession. Okay. First, ser- <laughs> First service laughed at quite a bit at that one too. Some people, anyways, what is it that God wants from us? Is he more satisfied with a confession that is more thorough? Is holding nothing back? This morning, we are going to look at what is arguably uh, the most famous confession in the Bible by a pretty famous figure, King David. We're going to look at Psalm 51. Like I said before, what we're chasing after this morning is we're trying to dig into what is it that God is looking for? What is it, what, what, what can it be about our confessions that is supremely and ultimately satisfying God. What is he looking for? What is he hoping for? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we'd like to hear from you. 
We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in a way that is, that is powerful, that you would reveal yourself to us as, in a way that is beyond my words, beyond the words of the text, but that, God, we would, we would gain an insight into who you are and your heart for us, that you would teach us. And that by the time we leave, we'll gain something valuable. Amen. Okay, Psalm 51, very famous psalm, um, written by King David, appointed king of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. King David's actually been, get, been getting quite a bit of airtime at Grace Community Church over the course of the past several months. If you're here for the first time, or if you just started checking us out, some brief context. What is, what is prompting this famous confession that David brings before God? David, as king of Israel, one of his primary roles, responsibilities is to lead his people into battle. Second Samuel 17, we read a story where David actually opts out of that responsibility. David shirks that responsibility and decides, you know what? I'm going to sub in for this one. I'm going to send my leaders, my lieutenants with my armies and they can deal with it. I'm just going to sit this one out. I'm going to kick it to crib. I'm going to relax. I'm going to enjoy my time. Arguably David's first sin, maybe his most important sin. While David's at home, his armies are off fighting. He gets bored. He goes up on his roof for a stroll. His eyes wander. Arguably his second sin. His eyes fall on a beautiful woman and he lets his eyes linger. Arguably his third sin. He acts on what his imagination is prompting him to do. He sends for her, sleeps with her. It's a pregnant finds out that her husband actually is a soldier in his army, fighting the battle he's supposed to be leading his people into. Tries to cover it up. Lies. Ultimately, hatches a conspiracy to have the husband killed on the front lines of battle so that he can marry the widow and pretend like everything's okay. And for a while, David feels like he's done a good job covering it up. Like his sins, his failures... It's okay. Then the prophet Nathan comes around. And I imagine Nathan knocks on the door. David, who is it? Nathan. Oh, man. Nathan. You're going to tell me something I already know. Okay. Nathan comes. David. In, in not so many words. Nothing you have done has been hidden from God's eyes. Everything you've done is known by God. You have been exposed and you will pay. And you will pay. This is the context for this most famous confession. David brings this before God in Psalm 51. He says this. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Like he needs to remind God. If I remind God of his unfailing love, maybe he'll be more merciful because I'm in bad shape here. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And David begins his confession 
being very clear before God, being very honest. You know, he's not trying to explain anything away. He's not trying to justify anything. He's saying, God, everything I've done, you know about, and you're right. There was good that I know I ought to have been doing that I didn't do. And he brings his sins before God. And that's good. It's a good start. But in the very next verse, verse 5, this is the verse that we're going to focus on a majority of our time this morning. David says something in his confession that is an absolute game changer. It's a game changer, and we're going to talk about why. David says this. He says, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And he says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And what David does here is so powerful because what David's doing is David is moving beyond the acknowledgement of his failures. David's confession is now becoming something more than him admitting to a list of sins or transgressions. David is confessing a condition. David is coming to God with this. Yeah, God, you've seen everything that I've done and I'm not gonna try to explain away any of it. Everything has been wrong. but we need to talk about something bigger that's going on here. And it's this thing that I've noticed about myself my entire life. There's something, God, that, that I've noticed about myself. These things that I've just recently done, yeah, good. But, but I've, I've, there's been a pattern of this my entire life. I've known the things I should do and I don't. I have the propensity to, to cover things up, to to comfort myself, to self-advance, to self-promote, to self-preserve, no matter what it costs to anybody else. There's something going on inside here, God, that's deeper than mistakes. I think about it this way. I'm picturing a post-game interview with the coach after yet another Redskins loss. <laughs> here we go, coming for the Redskins. All right, look, I know it's hard to imagine yet another Redskins loss, but if we can, if we can stretch our imaginations, maybe the Redskins, I know a new, new coach this year, so everything's going to be different. Well, let's say last year, okay, we got, we got our boy Shanahan taking the mic after another loss, and the news reporters say, coach, failure, losses, what do you attribute it to? And David's confession is more like this, is picture Shanahan saying, you know what? What I could do is I could talk about all the mistakes we made. I could, I could say we lost because of that dropped pass in the end zone in the third quarter. Or I could say, you know what? We lost because of that, that terrible play call I made on that, on that third down or my decision to go for it, whatever. He could say, he could say I, I could list a series of mistakes that I made and attribute to the loss of that. But, 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 but picture this, because this, this is what David's doing. This is what Shane says. You really want to know why we lost? You really want to know what's up with our failure? Here's what it is. Knit deep within the fabric of our organization is some dysfunction. From Dan Stinkin' Snyder, from our boy Dan Snyder, all the way to the newest hired water boy, our organization is wrestling with some dysfunction, and that's why we're losing games. It's a culture. It's something pervasive. It's something, it's something deeper and something bigger than dropped passes and bad play calls. That's what David's bringing before God. And it's an incredibly powerful thing. It's a beautiful thing. 
And, and this is why. This is part of it. Because David's confession of a condition results, and we'll see this later in the psalm, his confession of a condition results in a wholesale change in the dynamic of his relationship with God. It changes the dynamic of his relationship with God. Let's say David didn't go there. Let's say David didn't bring before God this thing that he's wrestling with inside that he's known has been there his entire life. And he's merely, like a lot, a lot of times what we think of just as a typical confession, we're just bringing our sins before God, our mistakes before God, our failures before God. And we're saying, this is where I've fallen short. I need forgiveness and I need strength to not do it again. What if David, if that's all David's doing, think about the consequences that, of that in terms of his relationship with God. Think about this. If that's all he's doing, all he is inviting God to be in his life is like a grand forgiver. If all David is doing is confessing mistakes and failures, all he's asking God to be for him is a grand forgiver. And God's not satisfied with that. You know, we had this little pop quiz before we started. What ultimately is satisfying to God in terms of our confession? I'll tell you this. It has to do with the role we invite God to play in our lives. And for some of us, it starts with the way we approach our confession. Look, there are a couple really big problems with the dynamic of that relationship. Let's say we just, our understanding of confession is that we bring our mistakes before God. We bring our failures before God and we ask for forgiveness. And, and the role becomes, he is our grand forgiver. You know, over time, you know what God becomes in our eyes? He becomes like this great parole officer in the sky. Somebody you know about parole officers. <laughs> That's cool. We love you. <laughs> we check in with m- once a month. Or ow, once a year, if, if he's lucky. I don't know how often you guys take your confessions to God. But he becomes like this parole officer that we just check in with and say, are you, are you living up to what you're supposed to be living up to? Well, no, no, had been living up this way. Okay, go away. I'll try to do better. I'll check in with you again later, right? This is the dynamic. You know what happens? That becomes this intense burden. Those meetings with those parole officers become a nuisance, a burden. We had, I had a conversation with one of our teenagers and they shared with me this. They grew up in a different church and um, confession was a, a part of what they did. And she told me, she said, the only reason I ever confessed anything in church was because if I didn't, I wasn't going to be able to take communion. And I really wanted to be able to take communion because every service, by the end, I was so hungry. Uh, True story. True story. I'm going to be taking communion in this service because I'm hungry. And that means, all right, I'll do what I got to do and I'll talk to you about my sins. That is not satisfactory. God, God, in terms of, God wants to be so much more in our lives than this grand parole offer in the sky that we bring our confessions to, our sins to. That's problem number one with that dynamic. Problem number two is this. It's very, very important. 
And this is, this is something, this is, this is kind of a belief that I held for so long in my relationship with God. And it was because my relationship with God had this dynamic where I felt like, okay, I'm called to live a certain way. When I fall short of that, I can confess my sins. I get forgiveness. I pray for strength to do more. Okay, so what I, what I began to believe is this. And we all in some way begin to believe this. If that's the dynamic that we have in our relationship with God, we believe that it is our responsibility to overcome the sin in our life. We believe that avoiding sin, that living better is our burden to bear. God's not satisfied with that either. Some of you know me. You know that I have this little tattoo on my wrist, okay? For a long time, I believed that it was my job to overcome sin, that it was about me having enough willpower, that it was a me being disciplined enough. It was about me making the, the, the best choices to avoid sin, to avoid the pitfalls, to, to, to not do the things that I know were wrong, right, sin. I believe that that was, that was like all on me. It was up to me. And so what I started doing is I started like making rules for myself. I started doing all kinds of crazy things to help myself overcome sin. You know, I remember my freshman year in college, um, played, played D3 football, small school, Allegheny College. I mean, it's like glorified high school football. So it's really no big deal. But the bottom line is this, I'm a freshman and we're playing the number one team in the country, Mount Union, and we're getting, we're getting destroyed. It's like 49 to seven or something like that. Coach puts me in, I'm a freshman. Uh, we got nothing to lose. Comar, get in there. <laughs> I'm like, what? I happen to be in the right place at the right time, and I get my, like, my, like my first career interception, right, against this team. So coach goes, this Comar kid must be amazing, which I wasn't. But I happen to be in the right place at the right time. So co- co- coach is like, Comar, you're going to be starting now. So in practice, you're going to be taking reps with the first team, the upperclassmen, the juniors and the seniors. So the juniors and the seniors are like, oh, Comar's one of us now. Guess what you got to do, Comar? You got to come party with us, right? So I'm like, okay, you know, I had gone off to college with a pretty clear understanding that God had big plans for my life. That God had this grand scheme to restore all things, to heal the world's brokenness. Right, I had a pretty clear understanding of that and that he actually wanted to be, involve me in that process. That he, that he had a way that a life that he desired me to live. And I knew that some of these things I was doing my freshman year, they weren't in line with that. They weren't honoring to God. They were destructive. They weren't doing any good for anybody, not for me, not for my teammates, not towards God's ultimate purposes. <clears throat> and so, but I still was living under this belief that it's my job to overcome sin, overcome sin, to be strong against it, to withstand the temptation. It's up to me, willpower, discipline. So I started making rules for myself. I didn't, I didn't want to reject my teammates. I didn't want to say, sorry, can't come hang out with you. What a, you know, what a jerk I would be. But at the same time, I knew that I had to make some different choices. So I started making rules. All right, I'll come down. Friday night, I'll come down. Before I go, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to get all fired up about God. And if I do that, if I have a quiet time, if I spend time with God before I go down to that house, when they bring that little red cup around, it's filled up with something out of this big metal container. <laughs> I would have the power. I would be strong enough to say, not for me. Uh, not, you know, not for me. I'm gonna... 
And to be honest, well, it didn't work. I would, I would be stronger for like maybe like the first hour. But after like the fourth or fifth time I come around with that red cup and then, you know, whatever. It just, I would fall. I would fall and I would feel terrible and I'd wake up and I'd be like, I've, I've, I'm in the same place, falling for the same stuff. Still just as weak as I was before. What happened? Yeah, I read the Bible before I went down. I got all fired up, thought I was going to be strong. Didn't work but I still believe that it was my job to overcome sin. It was about me. It was about my strength. It was about my willpower. So I did another thing. And that's a tattoo. I know I started about talking about this tattoo a long time ago, but here's what it is. I said, I thought to myself, this will work for me if I have a permanent, constant reminder of what I'm supposed to be living for. Maybe that will help me overcome sin. And it didn't. Now I have a permanent reminder on my wrist. Y'all seem to finish that statement in your head for yourselves of what I'm, what I'm being reminded of. This is all a result of the dynamic of our relationship with God when our confessions are merely bringing before him sins, our mistakes, our failures. And God wants so much more. God has bigger things in mind. God has a bigger role he wants to play in our lives. And ultimately, God wants us to experience a freedom from the burden of overcoming sin. Okay, there's a slight problem here because, okay, I get it. Like, I should go beyond confessing my mistakes and my failures before God. I, I understand in certain ways that, that God wants more for me than to bear the burden of overcoming sin, that he doesn't want it to be about my willpower because I'll either get proud and arrogant, and what's worse than that? Like, Christian who believes they've overcome sin on their own. It's just like reeks, right? Or I'm gonna be ashamed and guilt. God wants to protect me from all that. So what's the deal? Because the reality is there's still sin in my life. I still find myself behaving uh, regularly in ways that are unjust, unmerciful, unforgiving. So what do I do with that? I want to share with you, I want to share with you something that God spoke to his people hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. He was, what he's trying to do for his people is he's trying to paint a picture for his hopes for all of reality when we're freed from sin. And what I love about this is he paints the picture and then he gives us the reason why things are able to be this way. And this is coming out of the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11. We read this, and this is referring to when God's kingdom comes in his fullness, when sin is done away with. He says this, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. They don't do that now. It's bloody. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, all together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. I'm picturing like cow babies and bear babies, pajama party, sleepover. This is nice. 
And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. What he's describing is what he's describing is our reality when all things have been restored, which is clearly not our reality now. Perfect harmony. Fear. There's no reason for any of it. I can stick my hand in the viper's nest. I'm not worried about anything. There will be no harm. There will be nothing on my holy mountain, in my kingdom. And here's why. At the end of verse nine, he says this. Here's why. This is why there will be no harm on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And this is actually a really amazing thing that is being talked about here because that phrase knowledge of the Lord is not referring to this, where it's like, okay, the whole earth knows the Lord. Like the Lord walks into the room and we're like, we know him. Like we, we get it, we know him. No, what it's referring to is this. That phrase, the knowledge of the Lord means this. It's talking about the knowledge that the Lord has. And what we're told here is this. Sin disappears. Destruction disappears. Self-preservation disappears. When we know what God knows, when we know, when we know what God knows, we're not going to do the things that we do. When we see, when we see what God sees, when we see, when we see people for the way that God sees people, we're not going to treat them the way that we do now. When we see situations the way God sees situations, we're not going to try to manipulate them the way that we do for X, Y, and Z. We're not going to live in ways that harm others. You ever had one of those if I only would have known moments? Like, if I, if I only would have known that, I never would have done this. Or if I only would have known that about that person, I never would have said that to that person. Four years ago, I'm teaching in D.C. public schools. I'm teaching seventh grade English language arts, okay? And as a, as a staff, we were experiencing this epidemic where kids were coming to class unprepared to learn. They were showing up with nothing, no pencil, no paper. They had their cell phone. But that's about it. They come into the door. What's up, Mr. Gomar? Hey. Uh, it was a big problem. Not ready to learn. So as a staff, we decided we were going to stand up against this. We're going to start demanding that they come with materials, pencils, paper. So we're like a week into this, 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 this uh, you know, pursuit of trying to get our kids prepared to learn. And I'm teaching a lesson, and I get a knock on my door. And I go to my door, and I'll never forget, a little girl by the name of Tierra was standing at my door with nothing. No pencil, no paper, not ready to learn. And I'm thinking, I got to win this one. Because if I let her in, it's going to, I got to win this one. Okay, Tierra. You're not ready to learn. You didn't come with stuff. You need to go. You need to go, whatever, you, go find a pencil. Go find some paper. Get yourself ready to learn. And I do the strong thing. I do like the strong teacher thing. And I'm going to win. So Tira leaves. Five minutes later, I get a knock on the door. It's my assistant principal. I'm like, shoot. AP shows up at the door. Not good. I go out the door and Tierra's kind of hiding behind our assistant principal. She says, Mr. Komar, can we talk for a little bit about Tierra? She says, a couple things you need to know. One, um, four days ago, Tierra's family became homeless. They've been 
living on the streets for four days. We're really working trying to find them a place to live, um, but there's some stuff going on. We're hoping that you could let her into class. I'm like, yeah, I'm an idiot. If I only would have known, if I would have known. Bottom line is this. God wants to protect us from having to bear the burden of overcoming sin. So he sets things up. Like, make no mistake about it. God's grand desire is to restore this reality to a place where there is no sin. But he's very particular about how that's going to happen. Very particular. And it has everything to do with this. He wants to transform our hearts. He wants to transform our hearts. Confessing a condition invites transformation. One of my favorite shows, Kitchen Nightmares. You like some Gordon Ramsay. He's full of fire. You love that man. Every episode, I love Kitchen Nightmares, but almost every episode is, almost follows the exact same pattern. These restaurants are struggling. They invite Gordon Ramsay to come help. He shows up, and about halfway through every episode, Gordon Ramsay's like this, hands up in the air. I think I just got to walk away from this. My, I can't do anything here. This is a waste of my time. And it's always because of the same thing. Because Gordon Ramsay comes, and, he, and he's trying to help the owners or the chefs see the condition of the place, and they're always so unwilling to admit the, con- the true condition of the place. It, okay. We have a condition in the kitchen. It has to do with the techniques the chefs are using. It has to do with the quality of the food you're purchasing. No, that's not it. That's not it. I get, I, I get compliments about my food all the time. Oh, really? Then why are you like $200,000 in the red and no one's coming? There's empty table. That's not the problem. Gordon Ramsay's ready to walk away because... He can't do anything to help them. He can't do any transformational work if they're not willing to confess a condition. Jesus uh, said something incredibly relevant to this. Son of God comes. He's living on earth. Okay. And he starts giving people, he kicks off his public ministry. He starts giving people glimpses of his kingdom, okay? Healing, deaf people hearing, blind people seeing. He's teaching in ways that people have never, ever heard before. People are being freed, right? There's freedom in that. There's healing in that. There's transformation happening. He's giving people glimpses into God's hopes for our world. And just like that, multitudes are following him. Crowds, so big, he's got to get into a boat and push off into the sea to talk to him, right? So he sits everybody down. He goes up on a mountain. He sits everybody down. And in one of his most famous sermons ever, he starts with this because he doesn't want to waste anybody's time. He says this. He says, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is this. Everything that you see, the transformation that you see happening, the healing, the freedom that you see happening, you know who it's for? It's for those who are poor in spirit. Just really quickly, 
Greeks used two words for poor. They used two different words to describe a state of poverty. One described a person who was poor in a state of poverty, but they actually could do something about it. They could work their way out of it. They could overcome their poverty. They could make some money. They could, you know, acquire some things. The other word, and this is the word that Jesus used when he says poor. He says, it's the word for poor, the condition of poverty that you can't do anything about. Helpless poverty. Jesus says, my kingdom, my transformation is for those who are ready to confess a condition of spiritual poverty and that they can't do anything about it. Because what happens when people do that, now they invite me to play the role in their life that I like to play. I like to be savior. I'm tired of just being forgiver. I'd like to be savior. I'd like to be transformer. It all goes back to this. God created and designed us for a purpose. And that purpose was to live in perfect relationship with him. And not only did he design us and create us to be in perfect relationship with him, but he equipped us with the traits that we needed in order to carry out that relationship. And in order to be in perfect relationship, there's a few things you need. You need to be perfectly just. You need to be perfectly loving. You need to be perfectly faithful. You need to be merciful. If you're not perfectly any of those things, you're not gonna be in perfect relationship. Your relationships will experience a sense of brokenness. So God designs us for this purpose and he equips us with it himself. He is all those things and he knits those things into our being, into our spirits, into our souls. We're told that we're created in the image of God, spiritually, in, in every way. But then mankind makes a decision, a dreadful decision. And the decision was this, I can exist, I can be content, I can be satisfied doing things my own way outside of God's will, outside of God's plan. And man makes a decision to do something that is unfaithful. And in that moment, that thing that God created us with, we're now separated from. Who he is, perfectly just, perfect mercy, perfect love, perfectly faithful, that we were designed to be, we are no longer. That's why, come on, if we think about it, we think about what, what, what do we think about justice and mercy and love in our world today? Many of us think of them like this. Those are incredibly noble attributes that we should be pursuing and we should be trying to be obtaining, attaining those things. Well, the only reason we think that is because we are not those things fully. We've, those things have been separated from us. God will be satisfied with nothing less than a complete restoration of our spirits back to us being in the state of being perfect loving, perfectly just, perfectly faithful. He wants to transform our hearts. Make no, mis- make no mistake about it. He wants a sin-free world, but it's gonna come through his process of transformation. Last, last thing, I had this amazing conversation with one of our middle schoolers about six months ago, okay? Um, he was actually skipping church. We were back there in the hallway. And, uh, that's what I love about my job. Um, but I'm talking with him. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. Well, why don't we talk? Like, what do you think about what we're learning in youth group? What do you think about what we've been talking about? Like, you know, I don't know. But then he stops. He says, let me ask you a question, Komar. Let me ask you something. And he's dead serious about this. And this is what I love about working with middle school kids because he's so serious about it. He says this. He says, Komar, God wants a sin-free world. Why doesn't? He just pick like five people 
and give them legit superhuman powers. And then they can just keep everybody from sinning. And he's dead serious. The people that just laughed. And then why you don't work with middle schoolers? They ask these questions. Like, just kidding. Anyways, he says it. It's an important thought, right? He's wrestling with this. It was an incredible opportunity to speak God's heart to him. Say, you know, you're right. God wants a sin-free world. But what he wants is more than a world where people just can't sin, where people can't hurt each other, where people can't be selfish, where people can't be greedy. He wants a reality where where not one human being has it in their heart to do any of those things. That's God's desire. That is God's desire. Some of us, um, in terms of our confessions, we've been faithful in confessing our sins. We need to move one step further, and we need to think about what it means to confess a condition, what that condition looks like in our life. And begin, instead of confessing a condition, confessing sins and asking God for strength, let's confess a condition and ask for his transformation. Ask him to fill us with his mind, with his heart. Ask him to help us see others the way he does and situations the way he does. Let's pray. Father God, you have incredibly high hopes for us. You want us to experience freedom from a condition that we live with, that we struggle with, that causes pain and hurt in our world. God, I just ask that throughout this week that you, in the forefront of our minds, would help us to think about what it means to confess a condition and what it looks like to give you the right to transform our hearts. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.